continuing in our Dig Deep series. And the idea here is that we are beginning to think about what our stories are. And we realize that we live our lives according to certain stories, and yet often those stories are not true. Those stories, instead of building us up and encouraging us, drag us down. And this whole period leading up to Easter is about doing the work to set aside the stories, the wrong stories, and to pick up the truth of the gospel and the true story that God wants to tell in our lives. Well, John started this way a couple weeks ago, and I want to tell you just something of my story because it leads into where we're going today. So I come from a family where um, both of my grandparent, grandfathers grew up really poor. One started his life as a migrant farm worker because their family had been farmers and they basically drank away the land, and so they were migrant farm workers. The other um, started as a coal miner. His parents had moved from Appalachia to Youngstown, Ohio, which he said they thought they'd moved to Paris or London or something like that. Um, and he started out as a coal miner in, um, in West Virginia. Both of them came from really dysfunctional families and managed to do better than their parents. My, my mother's father was kind of what they call a, a white-knuckle alcoholic. He didn't drink, but, man, just the intensity with which he lived his life to not be as troubled as his parents was not very attractive, but at least it wasn't as bad as the other way. My paternal grandfather, my father's father, was, I think, just such a in-his-own-head interesting guy that it just didn't matter um, where his family had come from. But there was a real implication to the fact that his father was a mess. Um, in fact, his, his father, my great-grandfather, ended up living the last 10 years of his life with his ex-wife and her husband just because he'd kind of run out of people that were willing to take care of him. Um, so he was dysfunctional enough that what that meant was those things that men know how to do, especially fix things, he, he never passed that on to my grandfather. My grandfather took that ignorance that he had inherited from his dysfunctional father, and he passed that ignorance on to my dad, who knew how to fix hardly anything. And my dad did a great job at being a dad in the sense that... Um, a lot of the weirdness that got to his generation and my mom that got to their generation, it stopped with them. So my brother and sister and I had a much better experience than they did, and we're really appreciative of that. But my dad maintained the Ramsey male tradition of passing on ignorance of how to fix things <laughs> onto me. So if you go to our house, there are broken things around our house. And my experience has been, because of this, because I don't know how to fix things, that broken things tend to stay broken around my house. Now, some of them I can't fix. I like a, a broken golf club and stuff like that. I have computer printers that are broken, but I think they're supposed to just die. I think they're made to do that. But it is hard to be in that place. And a, and a lot of you have been like that too because you feel like you should know how to fix it, right? I mean, I, I know nothing about cars, but if something goes wrong with my car, I lift up the hood, I look at the engine, and I, know, no, I don't know what to do, but I just feel like I should know what to do. And here's the thing, is that in our own lives, 
A lot of us have broken places as well. There are things that we've done or things that others have done to us where we've, we've broken, we've cracked. And we feel like we ought to know how to fix them. And oftentimes, we don't. And even if you really want to know how to fix them, you're stuck. And so in our own hearts, and some of the deepest parts of who we are, we experience that as well, is that things that broken, that break, tend to stay broken. Now, add to that another layer, that we live in a society right now where things are designed to be broken, that they're designed to be, well, if not broken, but at least disposable, that there are all kinds of things. Computer printers, you know, you can take it to a guy and he'll work on it, or you can just buy a new one, because that's, that's kind of how they work. I mean, one of my first experiences with this was I was in college and got hired with a friend to renovate this house. It was like some rich people that we knew bought this house in Pasadena, and it was super overgrown, and they said, we want to, you know, hire landscapers, but we want to hire you guys cheap to get rid of the existing landscape. So they gave us a couple of chainsaws and other sharp things, and we didn't know anything about this, but it was kind of cool, you know, to just, they were paying us, I don't know, like what seemed like a lot of money per hour at the time to basically destroy things. And when you're a 20-year-old male, that's kind of cool. And never used a chainsaw before, but, you know, I'd seen it on TV, and I know you pull the thing, and then the, there's that part, the, this part that you, you keep that away from you. You know, we, we, we need to do that much. But the thing was, is, you know, they get all gunked up, and eventually the chainsaws just quit. Being a Ramsey male, I had no idea how to fix the chainsaw, but knowing that how to trust authority, I took it to a chainsaw repair guy. And the chainsaw repair guy basically said, what you have here are two disposable chainsaws. So you can pay me 125 bucks to fix this, or you can go back to Home Depot and buy two more for 100 bucks each. What do you want to do? See, we are surrounded by disposable stuff. That we are surrounded by things that you use and you throw away. I mean, there was a point, I was talking to Wendy about this on the way here. I, as a young man, I used to keep a handkerchief in my pocket, you know, cloth that when you needed to sneeze or whatever, you pull it out and do that. I don't, I haven't owned one of those in 20 years. But what I do now is every other month I go to Costco and I buy a giant box of disposable tissues. And more and more of the things in our lives are either if they're broken, you throw them away, or they're meant to be disposable. And I want to suggest that this tends to add up and tends to have an effect on who we are and how we understand the world and the stories, the narratives that we develop about ourselves. And, I, and I've talked to enough people and I've seen this dynamic enough in my own heart to know that this is true. It's what you see on the screen there, that a lot of us, I think, buy into this particular story, that because we're broken, we're disposable. Or at least the parts of our life that are broken, we handle those by they just stay broken, we throw them away, we just go off in another direction. But a lot of us are operating under this story, that the things that are broken just stay broken. The places that where we failed, they just remain failures. 
the things that we've lost are lost. We're going to look at a passage today in the Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you want to follow along, if you still have a dead tree Bible and you want to follow along, um, you can uh, do that. 2 Corinthians is conveniently just after 1 Corinthians, and it's just before um, Galatians. It's about 85% of the way through your Bible. Um, And Paul here is is writing to a group of people, and and he's talking about a similar theme to what we're talking about today. But for him, the metaphor for disposability and brokenness wasn't a Kleenex. It was a clay pot, a a cracked, broken clay pot. And he's going to use this analogy. This is what he says. He says, we have this treasure, and we're going to develop what that treasure is, in jars of clay or clay pots to show this surpassing powers from God and not from us. See, he lived in a world, the idea that things are disposable, the idea that some things, when you, they break or they crack, you just throw them away, that didn't start in the last 20 years or the last 50 years. That even 2,000 years ago, that was something that people dealt with, that when things break, they stay broken. And clay is like that. If it breaks, it just stays broken. And there's no one's... There's no way around that. But what we're going to see from this passage in 2 Corinthians, and this is the new story, the new narrative that I hope we can get a hold of, is that our broken places are not the end. That the places where we've failed or others have failed us, the places where we've been hurt or we have hurt others, uh, where we have been wronged or we've done the wrong thing, that we tend to think of those as the place where the bridge is out where the road ends, where we just don't go there anymore. You draw down the curtains, and you just leave that room empty. But what I want to suggest today, and I think this is what God's Word is telling us, is that when God is at work, the same God who brought light out of the darkness and who brings life out of the death and resurrection of Jesus, when God is at work in our lives, those broken places, those cracks in the jar are not an ending point, but they're in fact the beginning point of where God can and wants to be at work in our lives. So here's what Paul was dealing with in Corinth, and and this is a narrative that we deal with as well. In the Hellenistic world, the Greek world that they lived in 2,000 years ago around the Mediterranean, people made this basic assumption that if your life was going well, it meant the gods liked you and you were being blessed. And that if you were having a hard time, if you were having trouble, it meant that you were under condemnation. The gods didn't like you. You must have done something wrong. And, you know, we we feel this now. I mean, gosh, yesterday I was, Friday, Wendy and I had a a day together, and, um, you know, we, we had some traffic, but we were going to this cool burger place in West L.A., and I found a parking place right in front of it for free. And then we walk in, and it's no reservation. Sometimes you wait a long time to go in there, and as just as we walk in, two seats opened up right there, and we just sat right down and had an awesome dinner together. And you know, just at some deep level, when that stuff happens, it's like, man, I think God really likes me today. I must be doing really well. And then, and then you know, you hit a bunch of signals red on the way home, or you get cut off, or, or in our case, what's a 45-minute drive turns into an hour and 45 minutes because... Friday night on a holiday weekend, Valentine's Day, don't go out. (laughs) 
unless you like sitting in traffic. But this kind of stuff is rather deep-seated. And what Paul was struggling with in Corinth was they had this idea. These people were Christians, but they still had their basic understanding of how the world works, that if God likes you, your life is going well. And Paul kept getting arrested by the Romans. He kept getting beaten up by the Roman officials, that not everybody liked him. He wasn't all that good-looking, and they thought that you were supposed to be really good-looking to be a Christian leader. I mean, we've proven that here, but not every place is at the... It's not always... That's not always the case, but they thought that that's how it was supposed to be in Corinth. And so what 2 Corinthians is, is basically Paul trying to get them unstuck from this place, that to honor a leader, he has to fit this particular thing, and at the same time, to get rid of that narrative and give them a much better story of how it works. And so he's trying to undo that idea that our broken places, the places where we've had loss, that the places where things are not good, are not disqualifying, but can in fact be the beginning place of where God can be at work in our life. So this is how he begins this particular section. He says, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. See, what he's getting back from the folks in Corinth is, why don't you just give up, man? People don't like you. It's not going well. Obviously, the Lord's not on your side because all of this stuff is going wrong. There's probably something really wrong about you, Paul, because you keep having this bad stuff happening in your life. But Paul knew something that was really powerful. The reason he didn't lose heart is is notice what we have highlighted here, the word mercy. Mercy. See, he knew that his starting place with God was not his performance. It wasn't how good he looked in the mirror. It wasn't the um, oratorical quality of how he could speak or how his toga looked or anything like that. He knew the truth that the starting point was God's mercy. And friends, don't gloss over this. This is one of those words we use over and over around church. You get used to hearing it. But this is really an extraordinary thing, and this is one of the reasons why what God wants to do in Jesus is truly good news. And it's this, that God starts by wanting to be merciful to us. That God actually looks for an opportunity to be gracious to us. Now, we probably have experienced people that are the opposite of like that. You know, you probably have some people in your life that just seem to live to catch you out, to get you doing something wrong. Ha! I knew it. And, it, you know, they're kind of excited when, they, when you screw up. And it's like, wow, really? And we tend to project that onto God sometimes because, you know, he's an authority and he could see what we're doing and, and all of that. But notice the way this passage starts that it's because of God's mercy. Mercy is not something, and graciousness is not something God had to come up with because we screw up, because we're broken, because we've been broken. That mercy is God's first choice. It's how he wants to be with us. And that is great news. And so he goes on to say that because of that, as he deals with some other stuff, he says, so what we preach because of this is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. So what Paul knew is that going forward here, as he was trying to deal with broken people in the context of his own brokenness, he said it wasn't about himself. That when he was trying to lead these people and help them along the path of following Jesus, 
It wasn't about how good-looking he was or how good of a speaker he was or how well he had managed to deal with or even hide his broken places that mattered. That what mattered was that Jesus was at work and that Jesus was here and that the connection was not about Paul and the people, but it was about connecting them to Jesus. And it wasn't that their selves that he preached, but it was Jesus. And for me, that is just extraordinary to realize that as we go forward in life, I can absolutely count on Jesus and that I don't have to be the one that I count on. You know, there's a lot of things in life that are like that, that if we could just, you know, we like doing them, we could see it happening, but man, if we have to be the one that does it, our confidence level just goes straight down. Sometimes that's because of our broken places, and sometimes it's just, we're just not good at the thing that needs to happen. I mean, Friday, Wendy and I got to, we were both off, and we spent part of the afternoon at the Getty Museum in Brentwood, which is really an extraordinary place. And I, I just love being in beautiful settings and a well-designed setting. And, and we just spent a lot of time just sitting around outside, not even in the galleries. And if you've been to the Getty, you know that almost any place you sit and just look, it's been so well designed that you're going to have an extraordinary view. It fits with the hills. It fits with the buildings. It fits with the sky. I mean, it was just amazing. And, and I have just enough sense of that that I could get a sense of how it was designed. But the reality is, if they had left it up to me to design the Getty, no one would be going there, okay? <laughs> It'd be paintings and a bunch of warehouses, and I could see it, but I can't do it. And there's a lot of things in our life that are like that, right? Where we can see the good thing, but we can't do it ourselves. And then there's some places where we know we've just screwed up. That it's not know-how, it's follow-through. It's just the ability to hang in there. And each of us has places where we have things that we handle easily, and we have things that are hard. And you wish, you feel like you ought to know how to fix those hard things, but they just keep coming back. I mean, there's a, there's a line from one of my, a song from my, one of my favorite bands that's like this. It says, I believe in love, I just don't believe in me. And it's a love song, but it's kind of a quirky love song. It's like, I really love you, I like you a lot, but I'm just not sure about me in this relationship. Um, and the great news that this passage is trying to show us is it's not about us. That in our brokenness, in our places where we're hurt, it's not about our ability to carry it out. It's about our ability to get out of the way and let Jesus carry it out for us. It's not our ability to somehow fix the cracks in the clay jar. It's about letting Jesus work through those cracks and work through that along the way. You're probably thinking, who are these people? This is the old 97s that do this song. I just need to make a short break here. I love these guys, and not nearly as many people love them as ought to. And they have a new record coming out, and I, I'm just tired of this. I mean, there's like TV shows that I love, and it gets canceled after one season. There's CDs, there's bands, and it's just like, how does not everybody, you know, I mean, you, you see what's popular, and it's like, how can these guys not be popular? So, so help me out with this and listen to them. You're going to like them a lot, okay? Um, back on point. Again, this is the story. The story that most of us walk in with 
is that our broken places stay broken. That the way that we, we break, we set those aside, they disqualify us. They become places and things that we just can't do anything about. The good news here is that our broken places, the cracks in the jar, are the places where God starts. It's where God begins. It's not these things that you feel like are an end that there's no way out of. That's actually the starting point of where God can be at work in our life. In the passage, Paul goes on to say this. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the knowledge of God's glory. He's tying that into creation. That's the language of Genesis 1, that it was dark, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. That God, and this is the key thing, I'm not a creator. I can make things, you know, I cook a little bit, I can do a few things like that, but I can't make light out of darkness. I can't take, you know, a broken light bulb and make it shine. But that's precisely what God wants to do, is out of our brokenness, out of the things where we've given up, God can make light shine out of that darkness. Because he's a creator. He can make things where nothing is. And that's where a lot of us get stuck, is we, we've failed enough or been failed enough, where we just think there's nothing to do here. There's, this path is a dead end. And God can make a road where the road ends. He can make a bridge where there is no bridge. He can make light where there is no light. And so we have these two narratives that are parallel to each other. This is the one we usually walk in with, that when things are broken, they stay broken, that disposable things you get rid of. And the dark is the dark. And there's more dark out there than there's light. But the good news of the gospel, the good news that comes when Jesus is at work in our lives and at work in our world, is that God begins not with brokenness but with mercy. And we're not disposable, but we're in fact, we're created to be glorious and that God can create light where there's nothing at all. And so now we come back to that first passage. He says, so we have this treasure. The treasure here is that glory, that light of what God wants to do. We have it in a jar of clay. And he says, so that the surpassing power is from God and not from us. So this is a picture of probably the kind of jar that, that Paul was talking about. The word that's translated jar of clay here was something that was used throughout the Mediterranean world in the, in the time of the New Testament. So we're talking about 2,000 years ago, where in the altars and temples around the world, People, if they had an offering to give to their gods, they would often put it in a disposable clay jar. And if it was some animal meat or some oil or some grain or something like that, just to make it easy, you'd have your offering in that thing, you'd give it to the priest, who would then smash the jar and put the thing on the altar and move on. So this was their equivalent of a Kleenex. You know, you use it once, you throw it away, it's entirely functional. But it's breakable, it's fragile, it's one use only. And what he's saying here is that God chose to take this treasure, this glory that he wants to build into each of us, that he created us to experience, that we get robbed from because of our brokenness. 
that God has chosen to put this treasure in breakable and broken jars, ones that are cracked and ones that are prone to crack and will crack no matter how well you take care of them because that's how they work. Then he does this, that God's all-surpassing power, and this is the key word, all-surpassing, that there is nothing. There's no point of brokenness. There's no point of loss. There's no point of hurt that is beyond God's power to address. We get it in a breakable and, in fact, already broken container. Now, this is great news, and as a consequence of this, this is what happens. He says, when you can begin to get a hold of this and begin to rely on God to work through your broken places, to work through those spots, to allow the cracks in the jar, to allow God's light and love in, and to allow the glory and the light out, you can be in a place where you are pressed, where things are really hard, but you know that you're not going to be crushed. You can be in a place where you're perplexed, where you just don't know what to do next, You know, you've thought about it really hard and you just don't know what you're going to do next, but you won't despair. We can be places where we are persecuted, where for no fault of our own, people are going to turn on us, but you won't be abandoned. That we can be places where we are struck down and they were in a world where following Jesus meant you were literally going to be struck down. And many of us are in emotional settings where the chance of being struck down is is always there, but we won't be destroyed. This is what begins to happen when we allow God to bring light into our darkness, to use the cracked and broken places of our life as a starting point and not an ending point. If we can just trust him with our hearts and not lose heart, we can begin to live, live lives that are characterized by this, that really do transcend our brokenness. Changed my mind about a slide there. But here's the thing. Your broken places are not the end. They're not the limit. They're not the boundary of what can happen in your life. But in fact, our broken places are the places where God begins to build. That the cracks in the jar are the passageway through which God does his best work along the way. So, he goes on to make this point. He says, he says this, for we are, who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Now, that's kind of dense, so let me try to break that down a little bit. So what he's saying here is that, you know, when we give our lives to Jesus, when we begin to cooperate with him and allow the Spirit to be at work in our lives, God goes to work at those broken places of transforming them But it doesn't put a limit where no more bad things happen. It doesn't get, when you give your life to Jesus and begin to follow him, there's no guarantee from that point on that you're not going to be hurt again. In fact, there's no guarantee that you're not going to hurt others again. That there may be fresh brokenness that happens along the way. But if you're following Jesus and you're with him, What it means is, is that those things that are connected to death and brokenness, God can work and transform those for Jesus' sake so that they become new ways that God's glory and God's work is revealed in our lives. 
And so what that means is we continue to face hard things. And man, I wish turning our lives over to Jesus would just stop the bad stuff. You know, like it could be like opening an umbrella on a rainy day and you're soaked and you open the umbrella and you're not anymore. And we, and we sometimes actually expect God to be kind of like that. But that's not how it works. You know, the world is still broken. We are broken people living in a broken world. And so the implications of that are still going to be at work in our lives. But what can happen for us is that we don't lose heart. It will be better when we allow God to work through our broken places, but it won't all be solved in one day. And there will be remnants of that probably for the balance of our lives. But we don't lose heart. That outwardly, it may, we may still see lots of stuff. This doesn't happen overnight. This doesn't change in one day. That committing your life to Jesus and giving him the permission to be at work in your life, to be at work through those broken places, you know, it's not like if you start now, by dinner time, it's going to be all fixed. It's not how it works. That even outwardly, it may look like things are going bad, but we don't lose heart. Because inwardly, what God is doing is changing us day by day. And sometimes it takes a while for that inward change to work. But what does happen when we begin to allow God to work through our cracks is our perspective on our troubles, our failures, and the places that we've been failed begin to change. And he says this, he says, these troubles that we have, these broken places, are light and momentary. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, understand what he's saying here. He's not saying, oh, you know, once you come to Jesus, it's all easy from this point on. He's not saying that at all. But he says, once you begin to buy into this new story and get a hold of what God wants to do through your life, that he doesn't just want to fix you. He just doesn't want to adjust you. He wants to give you a life that is characterized by glory. See that word he's using there? Glory. That that weighs so much more than the other heavy things that you've carried, that they begin to feel and look light and momentary compared to the heavy and awesome glory that God wants to build into each of our lives. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? The, the, the tough things that we've been carrying, if we could just get a hold of how God wants to work through those broken places and move us into a new life, that God wants to load us up with glory, with something that's beautiful, with something that's great. And if you walk out of here with just that, that's going to be great, but there's one more thing I wanted you to walk out of here with that's going to be even better. And it's this, that as much as God wants to do this for us, that if that's where it stops, it's not enough. That he wants us to be able, that the best way that we do this is that when we do this for each other. So talking to the people in Corinth, Paul says, look, he says, this death that's at work at me, taking the bad things, the broken things, the messed up things in my life, and allowing God to transform them, that's good for me, but do you know the one who really benefits when I allow God to do that in my life? You. And that this change of allowing God to work through my brokenness, that's great if it only helps me, but it's not what God really wants to do. He wants to move on beyond that and have it not be just about me, but to be have it about you. 
See, God wants this mercy and glory and light that is in our lives to so transform us that we bring that on to others. And that's this glory is actually too much for us to just hold on to. The best way I can put this is not original to me, but it comes from um, a Christian writer, C.S. Lewis, and from a sermon that he did about 70 years ago called The Weight of Glory. And he's dealing with this particular subject, and it's, you know, it was in a university 70 years ago, so it's kind of dense. But he says some really awesome stuff, and I, I, I want to kind of leave you with this as we finish up. He says, look, at this point, it may be possible to think too much about our own potential glory. But it's hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about that of our neighbor. This is where it could go wrong. I mean, you you begin to think, wow, God can do all of these things in my life, that he can begin to take my broken places and use those as a jumping off place to do something really wonderful with me. And it's really easy to stop there. But what Lewis is suggesting to us, picking up on what Paul said in Corinthians, that's not where we can stop. It's easy to think too much about our own glory. It's impossible to think too much about our neighbors. And that's where the circle really comes to a close. He goes on to put it this way. He says, the load or the weight, borrowing the language from 2 Corinthians 4, or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. Isn't that a great vision? And as you do this, you begin to realize that these people that, you know, you just kind of walk around with, that cut you off on the freeway, that take a long time choosing a donut when you're waiting to get your donut out there. (laughs) These people were created to be glorious, to be sons and daughters of the king. Lewis puts it this way. He says that remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature. If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That's how good we're meant to be. That if, if a person is truly alive in Christ, we would be tempted to think they were Christ and not Jesus himself. And as a consequence of this, as we live our lives, we need to hold on to this truth, that there are no ordinary people, that you were created to be extraordinary, that you were created for glory, so is everybody else. And the best way to experience that is to allow God to be at work in our brokenness and then be concerned about the glory of our neighbors. So friends, let God do this. Let God do this. Change the narrative. Flip the story. Those things that you just wrote off, those rooms that you, you uh, closed off, those roads that you just took off your map, let God use those as a starting point for doing something wonderful and something glorious. But don't let him stop with that. Remember that the real glory we experience is when I turn it on to you and not me. 